Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and it is the 25th of November, 2012. Welcome to the Future of Education. My guest today is Karen Bersetti. How are you, Karen? I'm doing great. Thank you, Steve. Really nice to have you here. I know that this is taking time away from a busy schedule. You start school tomorrow? Sorry? Do you start school tomorrow? Yes, I do. I do. So uh, a lot of people have probably seen your YouTube video, the TED video. Um, for for those uh, who have, I'm sure they're going to enjoy exploring a little bit further. For those who haven't, can you give me a sense of um, your particular vision of children and childhood? <clears throat> Actually, um, the vision is is actually very simple it just is um, an approach um, to equipping our children with the ability to first be aware of the world around them to have the skills to shape the world and so I think it's really about making them less helpless and more competent every single day you're certainly I mean, I are this the I can bug which we infect our children with right so it's, I'm interested in comparing Indian culture to U.S. culture in particular, maybe um, Western culture. Was that an appropriate way to say it? Do you consider non-Indian culture, say American and European culture, Western culture? Would you say that? Yeah, that's typically how it is uh, sort of uh, understood. Okay, so in Western culture, there's a lot of emphasis on uh, testing and high-stakes testing in a way that often seems to prescribe or deny choice to the student or their own ability to be proactive. Do you experience the same thing in India? Yes, uh, in fact probably more than what you would think of as high-stake testing in, uh, in the US or in, in the European context. Uh, here the entire uh, approach for the last 60 years has been purely on uh, a rote memorization, academic uh, testing of uh, real memory rather than any intellectual sort of um, stimulation. So that's typically been uh, the approach simply because of the numbers. I mean, the sheer numbers are what works against us. We've got, like I keep saying, 300 million children that need to go to school. So uh, the emphasis really is not so much on understanding as, as much as just um, studying and therefore achieving a certain um, academic grade to allow you to probably take a job and that's really been the uh, sort of focus f uh, over the last so many years. It's just, I mean over the last maybe 10 years when quality started becoming a dialogue in the conversation of education. Till now it was just access to education. So. I would say that uh, unlike the West, where you'll believe choice is not part of your um, uh, sort of vocabulary, but it still is far more than what our children are given. So here in the United States, and again, this, the generalizations are hard, but there are obviously schools or pockets of innovation where um, learning is viewed differently, but it's not the primary narrative. Do you find the same thing in India, that what you're doing is recognized by some small number of people who participate and the larger narrative remains unchanged? Or do you feel that you're moving the needle in some way? 
Uh, no, no, no. It's not moving significantly enough at all. So, uh, though, like I said, the pockets are emerging. They're just so few and far between that it's going to take several years to be able to see some amount of tipping point. So I would say that uh, uh, innovation here is is a rare idea. It's but it is definitely being recognized as something that is important. And uh, but I but. Again, I say numbers. Numbers is what we are going with. So you say in, in your material that um, doing good can lead to doing well, that your students are achieving it at good academic levels, um, as well as um, seeing school and learning in this particular way. Do the parents of your students feel fully supportive, or are you having to convince them as you go along as well? Well, I really had the luxury of starting a school where I was not pressed for time. So I took it a year at a time. So it's taken me 12 years to reach my 12th grade. Um, so it's been a gradual story, but and therefore the parents um, have, have were part of this this journey. So initially the resistance, if it was ever there, was right at the beginning, the first couple of years when uh, they didn't quite know what I was setting out to do. But I think uh, the results have also spoken. The kids have, have made their learning so visible that I, I must share with you that now uh, my parents don't buy what, what is traditionally called a progress report card. You know, because the kids have uh, constantly make their learning so visible um, that they have become partners in this. So now when ch uh, parents choose to come to Riverside, they know what we're offering. Um, so there is no kind of um, sort of um, conflict in that. A lot of cultures see a change sort of a rite of passage to adulthood in early teens. Um, you seem to be really focused on helping children become involved in activities, become proactive and, and fuller participate, participants in society um, as, a, as a part of their becoming adults right that throughout school but you start them much earlier than say early teens right you're giving yes, younger yes. children much more of a chance to participate How, what kinds of things do you do oh lots uh, in fact um, at, at Riverside it starts like I said uh, uh, from the moment they reach uh, age eight and that's really when the very first uh, concept of the other is understood by the child and that then becomes their stories. Uh, so uh, every year, starting from uh, that age, uh, and let's say that grade, every year they engage uh, with uh, society. They engage with causes that uh, they perceive. So it could be hunger, it could be the differently abled, it could be child rights, it could be um, the city, I mean, in terms of environment. Um, so five years, that is from grades three, four, five, seven, and engagement happens every year. So that when they reach the, the teen years, that is uh, when the whole ethical milestone starts, uh, that's on 13, they have five years of experience of having known uh, that there are issues beyond just the school. And so now they can't say they don't care, because now that they are aware, they just have to care. And come 13, and that last leg, that's 8th, 9th, 10th, and 12th, they, they do from engagement to persistence. Uh, the children choose um, an area that they are concerned with, and they have to stay with it for five years. 
to recognize that change takes time. It's not easy and there will be issues that will come in the way, but how do they stay uh, committed to the idea? So that's really the journey at Riverside. It is awareness, engagement, and persistence. And uh, so several of the issues that our children are connected with are often around education. It's around children stricken with cancer. It is to do with, uh, like I said, making the city child friendly. Uh, so um, that's really what these stories become. So you're not only working with the students and with their parents, but you also need to work with the city. So yes. tell us a little bit about how you've worked with the city to create an environment that would be friendly to this. <laughs> well, a lot of begging and, and shameless kind of uh, you know stalking was part of that story. Um, I, in 2007, actually, when uh, I recognized that the city, uh, the city is most at least in India, not designed keeping this youngest protagonist as as the center. Um, and uh, so, I mean, I, through the years when the kids uh, were with me, we, we used to take them a lot for, you know, street plays and, you know, things to do with the city. And often the response was, you know, Oof, children should be, you know, kept inside or children should be quiet and children should not be heard and not be seen, you know. So, um, and that really was something that compelled me to say, how do you, how, how does a city not nurture its child? How, how can a city not design for childhood? And uh, we do have in my city that I come from, of course, and, and considering I come from the land of Gandhi, I mean, you know, it's just shocking that we don't have safer cities. Uh, and also in my city, we have uh, Asia's foremost design and management colleges. And I'm a graduate from the design college. And I remember thinking to myself that uh, the city should have been a landscape for the wonderful design uh, consciousness that my college should have done and the, or the, the management institute should have kind of created remarkable stories of change. But it hadn't, we hadn't seen that. So this really became a, a conversation with all the stakeholders, right, from the municipal corporation to the police to the, to the institute saying that how can we all collaborate as citizens to create a safer space so that the children will then back to the city if we feel if they feel that the city is giving to them and uh, that became uh, the con the story and uh, some of the the uh, projects that sort of emerged was with collaborative a collective kind of you know the collective action from the municipal corporation from the police from the citizens of the city and uh, one of the most ambitious ones was of course to close down the busiest street for traffic and that, like I said, for, for four years, we, we uh, I mean, the Riverside story kept pursuing this with the municipal, uh, municipal corporation and the police. And today, I must say, with a great amount of gratitude to the city, the municipal corporation has chosen to close down that uh, particular street every Sunday. This has become part of the ethos of the city. Um, and our children can just recognize that uh, even if it's for um, a day every week, the city cares and I think that's these are important messages we have to give our children. Do you think there's a connection between the kind of experiences your youth are having as, as students and children and their ability to participate actively in governance and significant issues as adults? I, I think it's um, I, I would of course see it manifest maybe in a couple of years but what i have started recognizing what, the, what i see my kids do i mean these are over the years that they are, are less scared and i think that's these are i mean their way of of, uh, 
of addressing an issue seems to be a lot more ambitious and a lot more audacious than I've seen children otherwise. I mean, they if they have to uh, say, oh, we'll do this, uh, they don't seem to see the complexity of it first. They see the possibility first. And I think that's the biggest change that we have seen. That not, I, I've seen a lot of, I mean, not just children, adults kind of first look at the complexity of a situation and say, oh my God, that can't happen. And you know, what if, what if, what if? And even without starting, we stop. Um, what I'm seeing with my kids is they start with the possibility of a rather ambitious plan, right? From, oh, we'll speak to the prime minister, or oh, we'll speak to, you know, Ban Ki Moon, you know, I mean, the kind of way they speak is kind of literally letting them believe that, yes, I mean, what's the worst that can happen? I mean, there's no greater sort of um, action than to go out there and try it. I see that happening. I'm hoping they, it'll stay with them over the years when they when they leave. But I think that could be a study after maybe a couple of years. This is a tough question. But do you think that the, the traditional dependence and compliance that you're trying to help your students overcome is actually attractive to people who are in power or who are sort of running society? Do you think there's pushback on this kind of schooling because of the independence? Not, not even, I would not even say it as much as the people in power. I think the biggest problem it, uh, uh, our children face is from home. Because compliance is pretty, right? I mean, it's so easy. It, it satisfies everybody, everybody is safe, everybody's happy, everybody listens and 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 my my whole thing has been against compliance. I'm saying at at full capacity, every year twenty five children will graduate from Riverside because I'm a small school. I, I'm, the whole strength is just three hundred, so it's twenty five children to a grade and and twenty five will graduate every year. Damned if I'm going to make twenty five compliant. There's no way. So uh, so the biggest uh, rite of passage, actually, what starts happening is when our children start the questioning and uh, parents start kind of uh, uh, coming to us and saying, oh, he's asking why. He's saying, give me an answer. And you know, so there's a reluctance, admiration to the idea. Even the parents, I can sense it that they, they I mean, they will not tell me as much as they will tell others at, you know, dinner conversations, you know, my, my child is so independent. My child has such a great mind. Uh, but there is, it's an, it, it's an important shift from the mind to say that respect is about just uh, compliance. Because that's a very Indian uh, uh, sort of uh, upbringing, that the elders know better and therefore you should just um, keep quiet and respect. So in my head, respect is not necessarily uh, about being compliant. Respect is about, you know, offering an idea that could probably uh, change things for the better. So, and that uh, faith that our children should have in that sense uh, is what um, I'm hoping, of course, to be able to present it in a way that doesn't necessarily, um, is not necessarily combative. That we keep telling our kids that, you know, if you want your idea to even uh, uh, stick, then you have to understand how to present it. So it's not about being rebellious unnecessarily. It's, you know, so uh, it's been great. Well, so in many ways, you're modeling that very set of attributes. Right, you're doing something unique, you're doing it in a thoughtful way, but you are pushing forward, um, oftentimes um, maybe feeling like you're the only one, but committed to your path. Um, how do you find teachers who <laughs> feel the same way? 
Well, uh, I'm very blessed with having uh, uh, the team that joined me right off in 2001 uh, is it, still with me. Right? And I think as a group of people, like again, I said, I had again the huge luxury of not uh, rushing this journey. And I think so that, I, and I believe that all of this has has allowed uh, the richer, to be deeper, uh, to be more mindful. The teachers who came in, are, I, there was not a rush of numbers. Uh, it was a year at a time, so we kept, you know, uh, inviting a couple of people every year to join. Of course, now we're a, we're sixty strong, but uh, it grew. It grew slowly, and it grew with with uh, with thought, and it grew with investment, deep deep amount of investment. And now I've got a tremendous, uh, um, you know, second line also that um, that takes care of uh, the training and and I think culture has been built over time. It has not been fast forwarded. It has not been rushed. And uh, so when uh, and I think in some deep, deep, uh, you know, you know, corner of or core of all of our beings, we want to we want to leave a legacy. We want to do what's right. We want to be part of you know, excellence and an ethical practice. And when we see that happening in a space, uh, it does good things to us. And I think we just lend our voices to that and just make it richer. So I've, I've really, and I think it's not about uh, uh, forcing it upon to the team at all. They've just become huge partners and believers uh, while seeing the value of the practice. And now when they add their own value, uh, it's, it gives great amounts of self-respect to oneself. And I think uh, it's, 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 it's doing great things to all of us. But you also talk about the parallels between teachers and students, and you can't have student learning without teacher learning. Those, those are my Absolutely. words. I don't know if they're yours. But you, you <laughs> yeah. commit a significant amount of time to the teacher's learning, right? Yes, yes. In fact, it's around 50 days more than the academic year for kids. So if, uh, we, we work around 210 days uh, roughly every year for the children and 260 days for the, for the team. So that's, like I keep saying, like exactly what you said, you can't have high-quality student learning without high-quality adult learning. So we do a lot of investment in the adult learning. It's ongoing. It's, it's over the weekends. It's when children leave for the vacations. It's when they, before they come back. Uh, so it's 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 very intense. Yet it's really around the teacher well-being also, you know, getting them to love the place, um, be excited, uh, look forward to thinking and ideas, and uh, and I think when they've seen themselves grow, and now, like I said, when the school has been recognized globally, when people we constantly have visitors on campus to watch our practice, uh, they, well, they're watching they auditing my, my teacher's work and it feels fantastic for all of them to say, wow, you know, we're being looked on as a beacon. What do you do during those 50 days? Does it follow the same awareness, engagement, commitment pattern? Uh, actually, it, it, uh, we work around what the five investments we call. We work around how do we continue to ensure that uh, our physical, cognitive, social, emotional and spiritual um, constructs are imbibed not only with us, but also how does it pan out and how does it um, kind of translate and get realized in our practice every day. So we will have inspirational talks. We will. It will be a combination of inspirational talks. It will be a combination of, like I said, reading and mastery. Uh, it will be a combination of physical play. 
it'll be a combination of master classes it'll be a combination of you know getting uh, a visit done you know to see great practice so it's it's kind of like a multi-layered um, i think we've in fact just finished five days of professional development before our term starts and it it, uh, it was just great you know and we we did a little pottery session you know just to bond as a team again so it's it depends again on the current need but what feeds us through is inspiration passion and growth so do your teachers explore their own interests as a part of that Oh, a lot of it. Uh, in fact, it's kind of mandatory. We want to get the passion into the school. In fact, a lot of the the, uh, the teaching happens through passion. So we have, in each key stage, we have the ch teachers teach through passion. If it's in the in the older grades, it, it works. It, uh, we have something called spark plugs, where every teacher's core passion is 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 given time, so uh, the teacher can pitch. Uh, their class to the students and the students sign up if they think it's exciting enough. So we've had, uh, you know, blood, guts and glory happening in the lab, which a teacher of mine was hugely interested in dissections and, you know, stuff, getting the innards out. So one big uh, thing was happening there. Then there was another teacher who talked about film and, and lyrics. There was another spark plug happening there. So we had another spark plug on the Olympics because that was happening. So basically, if I have a passion, do I? Uh, how do I bring it forth? So getting our kids to say, you know, that my teachers are not just people who make us learn, but they're they're great learners and passionate people themselves. So it comes in. So let me explore a dilemma we have here in the U.S., which is there's an increasing worry that teachers will have inappropriate contact with students outside of school. So mm. often the kind of modeling of passionate interests. Um, is um, invisible because there's mm. a, an inability for for or there's a concern that students would connect with the teachers and so the teachers have to be careful about not um, um, being too public in their activities outside of school. Have you had to deal with that at all and are your teachers modeling sort of a political participation or behavior that you ever wonder well how does this impact our students? Actually, that's uh, interestingly, um, except for when Facebook started, you know, uh, and that that became a space for because uh, now everything is visible, right? So if my teacher is having a party uh, in the uh, confines of a home, uh, suddenly if those photographs are posted on the net. Uh, well, kids will start seeing a lot of that, right? So that was something that we we spoke about as a team about what uh, and how do we want to engage that space, the social networking space, and um, it's when uh, it's so far we've not really had huge uh, to worry, but I think I know that some of the teachers. Uh, do uh, keep uh, in touch with the kids because a lot of assignments sometimes we post, you know, on the net. We have Skype uh, uh, sort of uh, sessions yeah, sometimes in the evening. Um, so social network space uh, needs um, is is where the interaction pro probably happens the most outside. Otherwise, what we've made as a policy that we would not. Um, sort of go for parties and, and things uh, or birthdays of children simply because one of the key things is that if you can't do it for all then don't do it for just one so what we have uh, tried to do in fact a lot of is because riverside has a lovely campus and uh, we've encouraged actually children to if they wanted to have a night over or something have it actually at riverside because it's a very safe space 
and the kids will be safe we know and there'll be adults here so and it'll be on a safe uh, ground uh, so we've tended to kind of look at uh, the public um, space more on more neutral uh, grounds and probably uh, uh, limit um, the facebook interaction to just uh, you know simple comments and assignments uh, that's really where the extent to what our uh, thing is uh, happens over there so the school becomes a real community yes yes but it is a private school right it is it is it is and so um how do you sort of personally feel about the the need to be i'm assuming you're charging parents for the students to come yeah so yeah, yeah. how do you how do you feel about spreading this knowing that not everybody's going to be able to afford the kind of experience that you have well we actually done three things um 2 years ago we started what was called what uh, what is the right to education so we uh, just keeping in mind that the fact that not everybody will be able to afford um the school we we've, we've been right from the beginning of course we always used to give what we call financial assistance to kind of uh, allow uh, allow participation from different you know communities to come in and different um uh, uh, sections of society to come in but two years ago we actually started what is called the right to education where 25% of our entry points is completely free these are for uh children who can't afford education at all in fact is people who fall under what they call the poverty line so we started that 2 years ago and we're very happy to see the wonderful um sort of engagement and inclusive inclusiveness that the school has been able to um participate in because we were able to in terms of bandwidth also just 2 years ago say yeah we wanted to have a a little mini india reflected in at riverside itself so that's one leg we've started but we also uh, in fact approach uh, which was that city wide initiative is completely open source and free and i don't know if you're familiar with the third initiative which is design for change which is um, an idea of taking design thinking uh, to uh, all children so that is today in around 60 countries uh, reaching over 25 million children that again uh, we started riverside in 2009 and today is like i said an open source idea reaching that same principle of design thinking <clears throat> has now reached um, 1000 schools just in india itself but rest of the world also and this year that is 2013 we are working on what we calling the e platform uh, putting riverside open source so we've been documenting riverside for the last 7 years in documenting our practice in just saw probably little glimpses of that um uh, on ted but we have documented student learning um great 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 best practices and models of learning for the last like i said 7 years and and we believe today because of the 10 years behind us we now are able to have that credibility not only in the market but in the practice to say that this works and we now believe that this has to be made public though we've already got um, seven other schools implementing the riverside program but this now will go uh, as an open source e platform that i believe like i keep saying is our responsibility in education that you know if you're doing good practice it has to go out so i am not keen on more opening up more riversides but i definitely feel that the impact of riverside has to go beyond so the idea here is that you open source how you manage the school is that what you're is that what you would provide no i i'm 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 providing uh, the learning approach the approach to learning so videos of practice how how does learning take place how can you energize learning how can you put this like i said this i can uh, bug and how how does that look like 
So it's it's literally it could be units of study, it could be the professional development program, it could be the processes that we do. So we've documented the length and breadth of Riverside, and that now is is in you know tiny little uh, wonderful videos that you can actually just uh, and with the video will come the whole back end. How if so for instance if I have to teach a particular thing like mastery what we do at Riverside with the older kids, I mean there'll be a video that will show teachers how that gets done. There will be the whole process of how it gets planned out and you know the evidence of student work so a teacher says wow i mean i can do this in my school sitting all the way maybe in in the us or brazil okay so let's talk about design for change and your own design background what does that actually mean what does um, design thinking mean you know design thinking in its purest form is the intentional act of making an experience better for all concerned it's the intentional act. It's not a by chance, by fluke concept. So the design thinking works on, uh, I mean, what we've done is we've kind of uh, demystified it because it always used to have this rather elitist vocabulary attached to design thinking. You know, you had to do this several things and uh, design thinking process seemed to be like only certain people's domain. Um, what we've, we've kind of simplified it into a simple four step, feel, imagine, do and share. And um, this, uh, if, if you, um, we're, telling, we're telling children, specifically, of course, children, but this we've also used with adults, that you cannot solve a problem if you don't know what the problem is. And typically what's been happening in education and rest of the, all other domains of human endeavor, that we solve the wrong problems because we're in such a rush to find a solution that we often don't pause long enough to figure out what the real issue is. And then we solve the problem, we wonder why change doesn't happen. And that's been the, uh, the story specifically in education. We've never gone back to the stakeholder, that is a student, and said, how do you want to learn? We've just given them more books, probably with colored photographs, and said, see, we've now put uh, lovely illustrations in it. Now you must love it. We've not really gone back to them to say, what is it? How do you want to learn? How do you want to, um, uh, for us to you know, be part, uh, partaking in your life? So design thinking, the very first step of feel is that, is, is to engage, is, is to first observe, and then to engage with the people concerned. And uh, once you do that, you're able to look at human patterns and then imagine a way to make it better. So you look at like a bold idea or a quickest impact or an idea that has, um, um, or, uh, is replicable in nature. And then you go out and action it, the do. And in the sharing is now we recognize the most powerful construct of design thinking. The sharing allows good practice to uh, be made visible, therefore accessible, and so somebody else can say, hey, I can do that too. So design thinking today is, um, of course, being recognized in all fields where people are saying, wow, this is really what we need to be looking at, but more so in education. And today with Design for Change, when children are applying the pause first, because that's Education doesn't allow us. We say we have only 200 days, we have to you know, finish all these syllabus, we have to finish the content, we have no time for prototyping. And uh, one of the key, again, elements of design thinking is prototyping. How do you refine an idea? And in the refinement uh, comes the real understanding. So we, we've just kind of offered this um, as a, a story in, uh, we offered this in 2009 and we made it, like I said, we had launched it just in India with, with over 30,000 schools. And like, of course, when the TED, uh, uh, when I shared it on TED, then it kind of went viral and went to uh, went around the world. But it, what we're recognizing again is that children all over the world have never been asked what they feel. We've always been telling children what to do. 
So for the first time when we're asking children what they feel, we're really coming out with the stories that really bother them. So they're not bothered about global warming at all. Most, the one thing that is affecting most children around the world is bullying. Our kids are scared in school. And that's something nobody's addressing. I, I want to go there, but for a second I want to return back to the design piece. So that process, uh, the pause and the intentional act of making something yeah. better. Does that is that actually explicit in the design program that you were in? When I think of design, I'm thinking of graphics product. and yeah. kind of thing, or, or yeah, or, or product design. Was yeah. that a part of your schooling? That process? Mine, yeah. I was. I had uh, my uh, my major was in in visual communication, and that of course was the whole graphic design piece. Uh, but very early on, I remember when I started my own practice in 91, 92, um, I started recognizing that there is no real great uh, line between good design. You can't say this is product and this is um, graphics and this is this thing. So uh, I got into, I think, what was more an experiential design space where um, I would I would constantly wonder how does the customer or the user gain from that experience rather than just take from the experience. It's a very different approach. You know, you, you can take something and you can gain from it. And for me, it was always a question of how do you gain from the experience? So even in the work I'd done in my, when I ran my studio, it was, it was really about figuring how does a customer interact with that space, the design, the product, the graphics, which, whatever it could be. And uh, the whole um, intention was will they take away from it? And is that what the desired uh, impact was? So design thinking is a very optimistic way to look at life. You know, it's always attempting to make uh, an experience better for the user. What had happened in, because people just got caught up with the product and you're saying, okay, is the product so great? We must throw it down your throat. Um, and design thinking is actually saying, no, when, you, when you're prototyping, whatever that action is, whether it's a product or a graphics, you're understanding the user better. You're not asking him to buy your product. And those those shifts and the way we started looking at it was really important. And that I, I did a lot of that with Riverside and I still do that. Go back to the kids to say, does it make sense to you? Tell me why is it not making sense? So tell me what this can be do to better, make it better. So much of, of Riverside has been built on a, a collaborative piece with the kids. So they've kind of co-constructed um, the processes and the narratives at Riverside with me. And, and I think that's what gives me such great hope about when you just put, go back to the, to the child, uh, from them you will, you, you will be taught. So have there been other significant influences in your thinking about education? Have you read any of the kind of classic educational thinkers? Are there particular voices that you have really been drawn to? Yes, my big hero, uh, Howard Gardner. <laughs> I, I remember reading him in 2001 and being completely smitten <laughs> by, by the complete clarity and lucidity with which he would present an idea. And, I, and I, he, he's been a huge, huge influence in the way I have looked at the work I've done. Uh, another, uh, another space, of course, but a person specifically was Car Carla Rinaldi of the Reggio Emilia approach. I had the good fortune of having heard her once when I'd gone for my radio experience uh, in 2007 and again recognizing, wow, how simple we are in, in most places and in education, all other fields, everybody wants to make everything so complex to make them sound so important. And here were people telling you, my God, it's, it's actually so simple. And that has, as always, 
uh, fascinated me. Of course, Gandhi has been for me a very, very important influence. Now, I, um, I wish I felt like I was more of a scholar on Gandhi, but I'm not. <laughs> but I certainly see in the desire for you to to implement change on a broad scale what I would have said was kind of a Gandhi-like um, desire. Um, oh. What in what other ways do you feel that you're that you would emulate uh, the kinds of things that he did? Oh, I, I don't know about emulating as much as as recognizing. I mean, there have been times over the last ten years when, even through say design for change or approach, one would get confronted by by you know stubborn minds or you know reluctant minds, and you can you kind of say. Oh, why is it so difficult for people, you know, to see the sense? And I would just always, I think, when there was this moment when one would just want to give up to say, man, this, this guy, we waited for 40 years to get independence. When he came to India, it was 1910, and he got independence in 1947. For 30 years, he just didn't give up. I, what the hell am I cribbing about six months, you know, one year or two years? You know, so I think more it has always been this this idea to... to um, Look at today, and to ensure that today goes as as ethically as possible, as true to intent and action as possible. For me, those have been that, that's what's probably inspired me more. Can I have my action follow my intention, and can my intention, uh, you know, stay true to the child? Does he also serve as a model of someone with a fairly regular background, who, through persistence and simplicity, enacted change? You know, uh, he is such a, a, a huge part of, I think, every Indian story, at least uh, um, for us, my generation probably is the last one who probably still recognizes his influence on, on all of us. And I think for me, my, my attempt, at least at Riverside, is, is to help continue that. So Gandhi is a very big influence at Riverside. In fact, all my kids at Riverside are... Um, know his story, I mean, are part of his story, you know, and a lot of it becomes from him, it's pulled from him, this is, uh, there's, in fact, when we just celebrated the first Be the Change conference, I, I must share that last year we, uh, Design for Change, is attempting to reimagine Gandhiji's birthday, that's October, October 2nd, is Be the Change Day. Till now, nobody ever celebrated his day as Be the Change Day, we used to just take a holiday on his birthday. You know, that was so far, and I'm saying, my God, how can we do that? So this year, uh, we, we had the first Be the Change conference on, on his birthday, which is to celebrate all the stories of Design for Change, to show how children are being the change. So I think that's, in one way, the legacy I'd like to, to hold on to about him and his stories and his influence, and get our children to, to understand that we, a lot of us are here today simply because of this man. And though now it might seem to be critical or to, you know, sound very, oh, what about Gandhi? I think it's silly. We have to just rem remember that a man such as him ever walked the earth. So again, I feel embarrassed not to know more about Gandhi. I know what most people know, of course. But uh, it would seem that there is a connection between sort of the simplicity of the man and the his non-traditional background. I mean, he wasn't a politician, right? I mean, he uh, was he a lawyer? 
Yeah, he was a lawyer. Actually, right. Yeah, he was a lawyer. Right, but but also sort of an uncelebrated person who then kind of through a vision makes a huge difference for people. Uh, y you did not train as an educator, right? I mean, no, no. Right? So, so is there a sort of a larger lesson for us about how we live our lives that, that Gandhi reflects and that you're trying to reflect in the school of a, of a willingness to kind of reach beyond what we might perceive as our normal boundaries and, and make change? I don't know if, if, if I ever started out with that, um, you know, I, it's just like I, I started because of my son and the experience he had. And I just, uh, at that point, I remember being perturbed enough to say that I can do a better job, you know, and I didn't know what that better job was. I just felt that I could. But I, I keep thinking so many of us go through life unperturbed. Okay, I mean, and, and unfortunately, blessedness or any kind of um, the fact that we don't have to work too hard makes us even less perturbed about about the world around us. And I and I and I think uh, and because uh, Gandhi himself came from a very affluent family. Uh, okay, and he needn't be perturbed. You know, he, he he went to the best college. He was at a good law practice. But I, I can't understand. I still am unable to figure out what is it in certain mental constructs that make us perturbed and what is it that doesn't. And um, I'm hoping that with my kids, because of one, we do what is called the inspiration series every week, every week with our kids. And in fact, we have um, a story that, that they themselves will be part of. That's why persistence is such a strong idea and citizenship is such a strong idea because I want my kids to believe that they don't have to be rich or strong or powerful to make change happen. All they have to do is feel. And they, that means they have to stay perturbed. Um, and for me, um, as or from the schools, our responsibility is that for 15 years when they're with us, it's not just quadratic equation they're going to be perturbed about. You know, they have to understand about democracy and freedom and inequity and all of these and know that they have um, a, a, a hand to play to make it better. So I think for me, just keeping them perturbed is an important story. So I had uh, Kirsten Olson on the show a couple of weeks ago. She wrote a book uh, called Wounded by School, uh, where she had sort of discovered that even people who did learning as a profession didn't, f didn't come out of school feeling like they were good learners. Mm -hmm. um, there's a film by Carol Black called uh, Schooling the World, in which she looks specifically at schools in northern India and the, okay. the um, unintentional but negative consequences of Western-style schooling in a particular set of villages. Um, do, are you familiar with the film? Do you know no, that, no, no, that particular no. film? Um, well, she looked at the degree to which children coming from the village would, would go to the Western-style school and then in order to progress would have to move to the city to go to sort of the next Correct. level. And then it was very difficult for them either personally or culturally to go back to the village after they had been sure. educated and that there that only some small percentage of those in the city then actually moved on to the university or to go to another country for schooling so a large number of them were left in the city maybe arguably more poor than they had been in the village mm -hmm. i know that's an oversimplification of her film but is is that something that you have thought about in terms of just the the notion that school could actually be a negative for people regular schooling? Yeah, I, I, I think in many ways um, it does. I mean, I'm not just talking about from village to city and, and that uh, movement. 
It is just, info, inf, uh, I think for us, we've never even thought of what schooling has to be. Again, we've not had the luxury in India to think that schooling actually has to be about quality. It's just about passing time, getting a degree, getting a job. So India has not really talked to us because it's such a scarcity model. That's all we've been telling our kids, that there's so little out there. So whatever you do is not good enough. And therefore, so much of the negative starts happening right from school. We're telling our children that cheating is all right if you have to get ahead. Bribing a teacher is fine if the you know get its marks. And those become acceptable norms because of the scarcity model. So we've not had an abundance story. We've not had a story that says, you know, if you're capable, if you're smart, if you're passionate, you can actually go out and realize that passion because there will be space in life for that. I mean, I remember when, when if, if God forbid, you happen to be academically even slightly smart, which unfortunately I was, the only two avenues that were, you had to either become a doctor or an uh, engineer. Those were the only two preferred uh, socially acceptable jobs. And when I joined the design college, a lot of people, uh, you know, in my family, uh, all my relatives, etc., uh, thought maybe I didn't do well in, in school and therefore we shunted off to this design college, which is the only design college that had started and nobody had, had a clue what design was. So only now, um, and, and again, so for so many years, society's acceptability of jobs determined what happened in education. So only uh, math or, or science became valued. Uh, and those were, those then became uh, what you what uh, uh, schooling would kind of thrust on your throat. So it was never, never about a child finding their voice. Never. And I don't think it still is that. And I'm hoping that we will slowly shift to a point when uh, children will find uh, their voices, you know, and find their passions and recognize that they can realize that dream. And so entrepreneurship was never um, a, an approach to education. It was all about a job. So uh, it's so today when when people go out and, and find so it's, whether it's from a village or a city school, it was the same story. And only now it's probably changing a little. So let's kind of wrap up by having you tell us about the design for change. And you're discovering that this, this, this concern for the students, um, that for many of them, it's bullying. So yes. how, how does the design for change movement address that? And what kinds of things are you seeing kids do? Well, we've got a lot of stories about bullying that, ha that are coming in and some of the solutions that our kids have been sending us have been quite remarkable. Uh, there was a school in, uh, in, in the south of uh, India which, which looked at um, um, the idea of bullying in their own school and did a week-long um, sort of initiative that was very interesting. So the first was silent hour. That means they all taped their mouths for an entire hour of the, so everybody, right from the teachers to the peons to the students, every single person put a tape over their mouth and experienced what it meant for somebody not to talk to them. Okay, so that was one, uh, that was, uh, one initiative. Then the second day, they ensured that every day for lunch, they sat with different people uh, to make friends. So they, they refused to sit in their own cliques and in their own little groups, but ensured that every day for lunch for that entire week, they would sit with new people. Then they went ahead and one, uh, the third day was made little badges for every single person in the school said, I am special because, and then the kid filled up what they were special uh, uh, and they all wore it. So it became a great conversation piece that everybody was special. 
then the fourth day they made cards um, uh, for everyone and the fifth day they made this huge installation of like a huge mural with everybody's handprint on it so they said that having done that uh, a lot of uh, parents actually started coming to school saying that the children felt safer coming uh, for that uh, uh, after that particular initiative and in fact we met those children a year later and uh, we were really really happy to see that they had actually continued uh, that especially the lunch sitting with different people at lunch and the and and the special i am special because became one uh, one event of uh, every week so i think what the children are telling us is that when they experience it themselves their solutions are far more layered than if an adult came and said you know you should do this because i think they repeatedly telling us again that you don't quite know what we're feeling you know that so we're feeling this and and we need to solve these for ourselves so uh, i think what we are today now it's been 4 years and i and we've got over 10000 stories of change we with the largest collectors of stories in the world i mean these are real stories of change and what we're doing is we're coming up with uh, for lack of any other better word a kind of uh, a textbook because we recognize that most schools uh because they just built a resist if it's not part of the curriculum we introduce we would like to introduce design thinking as a subject in most schools and we're creating this in collaboration with the good uh, good work project at harvard with the d school stanford with nid and its its designers and we're putting together a design thinking book along with these real stories of change so we've got the best comic book industry in india who's who's converted uh, the stories into comic as the second of uh, December we're launching this comic which is which is stories of change um, you know so the superheroes uh, so what we're trying to do is that these stories that are coming to us we want to put it back into publishing so we we we're getting into story books we're getting to animated videos we're getting into uh, a textbook we're kind of saying children should now be inspired by other children so there's a 9 year old in bhutan or there's a 11 year old in peru or there's an 8 year old in the villages of india i mean they're changing the world and uh, we didn't have role models and so these kids can become role models and find the gandhi in them or find the nelson mandela in them or find the martin luther king in them that would be pretty special <laughs> that's a really that's a really good way to end um was there anything i didn't ask you about that you would want to make sure people knew about what you're doing No I I just love to know if more people would be interested to collaborate with us or get their schools to take part in sign for change um I, I would just love it and uh, so I'm just uh, an appeal to all your your listeners to say that we would love to hear your children's story and you can be part of design for change and so that we could have the deep pleasure of sharing your children's stories that would be fantastic So thank okay. you so much for coming on the show <laughs> Thank you Steve it was lovely